conversations. Good day, everybody. This is Davo sitting here with Rahul. I'm Rahul. <laughs> this is Med Conversations. Today, we'll be talking about heart failure evaluation. So, we'll be going through the history, the exam, some of the first investigations, and then maybe mention some of the advanced ones. It's a topic close to my heart. Mm-hmm. So, when you... That's one, Rahul. Yeah, thank you. When you evaluate someone for heart failure, what are the four questions you ask yourself? That's the first question I would ask is, is this heart failure? That's a good starting point. Mm -hmm. So differentials include things like COPD or other causes of fluid overload like venous insufficiency, lymphedema, renal failure and liver failure. Next, I'd ask myself, how bad is the heart failure? And then what is the cause of the heart failure, underlying cause? And then what comorbidities are making this worse? So four questions. Is it heart failure? How bad is it heart failure? What's the cause of the heart failure? And what, what's making this heart failure worse? Mm. So moving on to symptoms, we'll be reading Chinese-like, right to left. So right, heart failure. What are the symptoms? Uh, so peripheral swelling is the first thing I think of. So mm. swelling in the legs. Um, people can also get some gastrointestinal stuff from back up from the right um, mm. heart, right ventricle. Uh, that includes hepatic congestion, nausea, vomiting, bowel symptoms. Pretty smart patients coming in saying, I've got hepatic congestion. Yeah, pretty it's good. quite a They're symptom. Good. <laughs> Train them well. Um, so history, left heart failure. What are the symptoms? So you've got your congestive symptoms, Rahul. So that's basically dyspnea. So dyspnea overall has a sensitivity of 87% and a specificity of 15%. That's not surprising. There's lots of other causes of dyspnea, obviously. So what that means, if there's no dyspnea, you know, there's a good chance it's not heart failure. If there mm. is dyspnea, you're not definitely locked in for it mm. being heart failure. Absolutely. So basically, it's due to pulmonary edema. Um, and the other types of dyspnea that people with heart failure classically get are orthopnea. So you ask them, do you get particularly short, short of breath when you lie down? How many pillows do you sleep on at night? So what's the physiology of orthopnea, Rahul? Uh, So when someone lies down, um, gets horizontal after being vertical all day, you get redistribution of all that blood that's been Mm. sitting down in the legs, comes up into the thoracic cavity, into the chest, and then that increases your venous return to the heart, which your failing left ventricle, or even right ventricle, but in this case left ventricle, cannot um, pump against, uh, can't remove all that blood, and so you get short of breath. Gets on the lungs instead. Mm Mm-hmm. And then there's paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, which is where people wake up at night in these paroxysms of shortness of breath. The classic story is I bolt up right in the middle of the night and I am extremely shortness of breath and it takes about 30 minutes for it to settle down. That's the classic history. There's, al- there's also an element of bronchospasm involved there on top of the pulmonary edema that you usually get, which is why they have that sudden bolting upright. Mm. So then with left heart failure, you also get some end organ perfusion symptoms. So the overall constitutional fatigue and weakness. You also get some renal end organ perfusion symptoms. What are they, Rahul? Well, so initially early in the course, you get nocturia actually. And a lot of people don't ask about that. But people who have early stages of heart failure will wake up in the night and start noticing they're going to the bathroom more. I think it's similar pathophysiology Mm. to that which happens with orthopnea, which is you get redistribution of that blood, increased uh, perfusion of the kidneys, increased blood flowing through the kidneys, and that make more urine. And so they get up at night to release said urine. Um, But late stage kidney... uh, manifestations of heart failure is the classic oliguria so they're actually not producing as much urine because their heart is not filling up their kidneys with blood and they're not getting the pressure required to get that urine across 
Then you also get cerebral symptoms, so your brain isn't getting enough blood because of that failing heart. So that's things like confusion, memory impairment, anxiety, and sometimes even psychotic symptoms. So final group of left heart symptoms now are the cardiac symptoms. Angina is a very common one, and that's kind of a two-way street. You're not sure if it's a cause or consequence of the heart failure. So obviously a failing heart will have diastole that's not as good, and so the coronary arteries don't get filled as well as they should. And yeah, just on that, remember that the coronary arteries are filled during diastole, not mm. systole. So when the blood's flowing back towards that aortic valve, it goes into the coronary arteries. Mm. And ischemic heart disease, as we mentioned on our previous podcast, is a very important cause of heart failure as well. Palpitations is another one that my patients will often complain, or complain about. I got short of breath and I could feel my heart beating in my chest. So Rahul, do you want to re- recap all those symptoms for us? Yeah, so just quickly... We break into right and left heart symptoms. The right heart symptoms are mostly congestive, and they consist of hepatic-type stuff, so uh, nausea, anorexia, bowel symptoms, and then the peripheral edema. Okay? The left heart symptoms can be broken into the congestive, the poor output or organ perfusion symptoms, and then also the cardiac symptoms. Okay? So the congestive ones usually the shortness of breath, orthopnea, PND, the perfusion symptoms consist of the organ dysfunction, particularly we mentioned renal and brain dysfunction, and then the cardiac symptoms, which manifest as chest pain and also palpitations in arrhythmia. Excellent summary, Rahul. Well done. Mm-hmm. So I also wanted to talk about the NYHA criteria, the New York Heart Association, which have kind of taken over the world and how we classify our patients symptomatically. There's four classes. So class one is where there's no limitation of ordinary activity with heart failure. Class 2 is when there's slight limitation on exertion. Class 3 is where you have symptoms on minimal exertion. So I ask patients, is, do you get short of breath or tired when you're kind of having a shower or going to the toilet? Um, and then class 4 is where they'll be short of breath at rest. And they're quite good for prognostication, actually. So, And also used to guide treatment, as we talked about on our treatment podcast. So NYHA... One have a four-year mortality of 19%. Class 2 and 3 have a four-year mortality of 40%. And Class 4 have a really high four-year mortality of 64%. And just another set of criteria that are being more widely used in the States. Um, It's the stage A, B, C, and D criteria. So stage, this is an attempt to uh, treat heart failure before it gets to this symptomatic stage. So the stage A people the people who don't have currently have their sort of pre-heart failure, but they might have a family history or they might have something that might predispose them to. Stage B is when they actually get some structural damage to the heart, but they're yet to develop any heart failure symptoms. Stage C is where they've got structural damage and they've now got heart failure symptoms, so that's where all your NYHA criteria would fall into. And then stage D is when you're actually treating refractory heart failure, so you've optimised their medical management and these people are still in heart failure, um, and that's really end-stage sort of heart failure. Cool, thanks. Um, So the next part of the podcast will be just going through the uh, heart failure examination. So what's the targeted exam if you're doing a short case or you've got limited time in ED for someone you think probably has heart failure? So as with all examinations, you start with the general inspection. What might you see in one of these classic patients? Uh, So shortness of breath is one of the first things that's really noticeable. Um, You can notice their BMI, so whether it's high, that's a risk factor for heart failure, or low, that's actually cardiac cachexia, which is a bad prognostic sign. You can notice some swelling, and in some people you can notice a change in colour, either jaundice, cyanosis, or pallor, 
um, jaundice being from hepatic congestion, cyanosis being from poor perfusion, and pallor being from possibly anemia or poor perfusion. Mm. So the next thing that the wires tally and collar tell us to do is look at the pulse. So um, have a look at the rate. So is it a resting sinus tachycardia that is often quite sensitive for progression of heart failure? And the character of that pulse is kind of weak, rapid and thready. That obviously makes a lot of sense with a failing heart. A very specific kind of smarty pants pulse sign is pulsus alternance. It's not known why this happens, but in heart failure, can sometimes have alternate strong and weak pulses. So very specific, not very sensitive. And atrial fibrillation is often found in these patients as well. And you should look for it because you need to consider things like anticoagulation. And that can be a cause or a consequence of heart failure. Other things you can do while you're down there at the peripheries is look at the cyanosis and see if there's, the peripheries are cool, indicating that there's poor perfusion down there. As you come up the arm, you can look at the blood pressure. Low blood pressure indicates a failing heart that can't sustain the blood pressure required for perfusion of the tissues. Uh, and a narrowed pulse pressure um, is also, so that's a, when you get a small number between your diastolic and your systolic, indicates a heart that's not pumping very well, obviously because there's no big pump and then release. You're not getting a big difference between systole and diastole. Mm. And so less than 25% of the systolic value, so if the pulse pressure is less than 25%, of that value that's pretty severe and a sign of heart failure. So moving up to the neck now, so looking at the JVP, that's regarded traditionally as the most useful sign to identify congestion. I certainly am no master at it, but after my term on GenMed, I'm getting a little bit better. It's quite sensitive, um, 52%, but more specific, 70%. Uh, the eponymous name here is Kusmol sign. Rahul, do you want to explain that one to me? Okay, so normally when you breathe in, you get uh, all the blood is being sucked into your heart um, and your JVP should lower because it's being pumped out by the right ventricle effectively. In Kussmaul sign, it's when you take a big breath in and the JVP actually goes up because there's more blood being sucked into the heart, but the right ventricle isn't clearing it properly. So that JVP rises instead of lowering. Thank you, Kussmaul and Rahul. Mm. Then there's large V waves. I have no idea how to see this in real life, but hopefully one day that secret will be unlocked to me. Mm. But large V waves in the JVP is a sign of functional tricuspid regurgitation. Next stop is the heart. So this, is, this was news to me when I was researching for this podcast, but the apex beat is actually one of the best signs. Um, and the Oxford Quarterly of Medicine Journal found it to be overall the best if you look at sensitivity, specificity, positive and negative predictive value. A laterally displaced apex beat was the best sign for heart failure. So I basically just go under the nipple when I find it, but the textbooks say midclavicular line, fifth intercostal space is where it should be. Um, and when you're feeling it, uh, it might be laterally displaced, um, it might be dyskinetic, hyperdynamic if there's some left ventricular hypertrophy or hokum, and uh, palpable gallop rhythm is a, is a sign as well. I can't say I felt that one. Yeah, so dyskinetic basically means that it's weak, and hyperdynamic means that it's, it's stronger than you'd expect. I guess mm -hmm. you have to feel a few to understand where you're lying on that range, but yeah. Mm -hmm. um, next is auscultation of the heart. Uh, mm -hmm. Murmurs can be heard, and obviously valvulopathy can be an underlying cause of heart failure. So you want to listen carefully for any murmurs. But in, dish, in addition, there are certain murmur signs which are common to heart failure. Do you know what they are, uh, double? So the S3 gallop rhythm. That's right. So that's basically where you've got a big floppy ventricle. So this is in reduced ejection fraction heart failure. It doesn't pump all the blood out, 
And so after systole, that is in a third heart sound, which is just after the S2, you've still got a lot of blood blood flopping around in there, flushing around in there, and that's what you're hearing, that's the third heart sound. What about the the fourth heart sound, Dabble? Fourth heart sound is another sign in, in So apparently this is when you have a stiff ventricle and the blood knocks against that amexa sound. This all sounds like conspiracy theories to me, uh, right? I can guarantee <laughs> you this is true. This is fact. Um, <laughs> Uh, so basically, yeah, during diastole, it comes later, obviously, than the third heart sound because now the heart is filling back up with blood and that new blood that's coming in is hitting a stiff ventricular wall and that creates the fourth heart sound. It's the old Kentucky, Kentucky versus Tennessee, Tennessee, Tennessee. Mm. There's got to be some Australian equivalents there. Yeah. Tasmania. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, regardless of how it comes about, it's very specific for heart failure. It's quite an important sign to be able to hear. Um, although there is some significant inter-observer vari- variability that can't be accounted for by experience. The sensitivity is 40 to 50% and the specificity is 90%. So that's pretty good. Mm. Next is the lungs. Next stop is the lungs. Um, what's the classic thing we first hear when we get to so the lungs? So crackle slash crepitation slash rails. Oh, whatever, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. So okay. very important um, kind of baseline examination. We do it on all our gen med patients. Mm, coarse crepitations is usually mm. what you hear here, but you know, again, you have to be a reasonably experienced clinician to be... Yeah, just crackles and some X's on the bottom of yeah, your, your just, lung yeah. picture is fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in advanced chronic heart failure patients, so people who've had heart failure for a long time and they're doing all right, um, you might not actually hear any crackles because the channels that get rid of that fluid have actually dilated over time and they're reasonably good at getting rid of that alveolar edema. Okay. Pleural effusion. So this is where you get your percussing finger out. Mm. So obviously pleural effusions are stony dull and that is often a consequence of right heart failure or left heart failure. So if they've got a pleural effusion but no crackles, then you think it's probably right heart failure. But if they're both, it's more likely to be left. Mm. That's not a very good... uh, I don't know how how exact you'd be on that front, but you can give it a crack. I mean, if they don't have crackles, they might still be in left heart failure. That's true. Um, You've got to look at the whole picture, I guess. The other thing about a pleural effusion is, yeah, if if you're listening to the lungs and you don't hear anything at the bases... You know, I always get afraid. I'm like, oh, I just I can't hear anything because I'm bad at examining. But they might just have a pleural effusion, so there's actually no sounds. So the abdomen is next. So tender hepatomegaly is a sign. You might get a pulsatile liver if you've got tricuspid regurgitation. I felt that the other day for the first time. It's, yeah, really good. it's a good sign. It's a good sign. Didn't think tell the patient they were pregnant. <laughs> kicking. Hepatojugular reflux is another. So we press on the liver and the JVP uh, raises... Mm. Uh, then there's edema in terms of right heart signs. Um, so you can have edema. So, you know, typical is you draw your little pin legs and you see it coming up to the ankles, the mid shin. But you do get people who have edema going all the way up to their sacrum, in the scrotum in men, mm-hmm. um, ascites uh, as well if it's really bad, so the abdomen starts to fill up with fluid. And in, in people that have been hospitalized for a long time, if they've got skinny legs but you think they've got right heart failure, just make sure you palpate their sacrum as well. Mm because they've been bed-bound. Well, that's where the fluid's gone. If, if it's called <laughs> So up-to-date has a really good way of summarizing all those signs. So there's, they say there's four signs that are best to suggest a decline in cardiac output. So arresting sinus tachycardia, a narrow pulse pressure, peripheral vasoconstriction, so cool, pale, sometimes cyanotic peripheries, and diaphoresis, that's the four best. And then three manifestations of volume overload. So raised JVP, we said, was very good. Crackles on the lungs and peripheral edema. 
So these things have been studied to see how effective they are in comparison with investigations. There was a study that was released in uh, 2011 in the American Journal of Medicine, which was called The Bedside Assessment of Cardiac Hemodynamics, the Impact of Non-Invasive Testing and Examiner Experience. So they, they had 116 patients, and they defined the signs of elevated right heart filling pressure as raised JVP, peripheral edema, and crackles, and signs of elevated left heart filling pressure, signs of elevated right heart filling pressure, obviously you can go left to right, um, crackles and gallop rhythm. And they found that the filling pressures were uh, correctly judged to be abnormal by physical examination in comparison with an echo in 71 and 60% respectively, with the 71 being the cardiologist and 60% the trainees. So what Darvor was trying to say there in a convoluted way <laughs> is that there are studies to back up the physical exam, so actually look at the patient. I know, you get all these cranky old physicians who are like, I can do anything an echocardiogram can do. And, yeah. 71% of the time. Yeah, they're right. <laughs> ECG, this is one of the most uh, useful investigations uh, for ruling out heart failure because a normal ECG has a 98% negative predictive value. That's really good. And uh, particularly important things to look at when you're looking at ECG on someone you suspect heart failure on that thorough history you did are signs of cardiac ischemia and arrhythmia, so sinus tachy or atrial fibrillation. Good on you on that thorough history, by the way. Hmm. That was great. Thank you. So moving on to the bloods next. So on a full blood exam, what do you look for, Rahul? Uh, so on your FBE, you might see a high white cell count. You also might see a low hemoglobin. So white cell count would be a cause of decompensated heart failure. They might have an infection somewhere. In somewhere. So urea and electrolytes, baseline blood, everyone with heart failure needs it for several reasons. So hyponatremia signifies severe heart failure. Uh, renal failure can exacerbate heart failure because of that angiotensin renin cycle. You can also assess their organ dysfunction with the renal. That's true, yeah. VCs. Yeah. And uh, you need baseline electrolytes before you put people on things like furosemide or spironolactone, particularly paying attention to their potassium. LFT, so liver function tests. So a lot of my patients with right heart failure have deranged um, liver function um, due to hepatic congestion. And that's important to think about when you're prescribing things like warfarin, because I've, I've often seen that their warfarin becomes super therapeutic out of, out of nowhere when they've mm. decom- decompensated right heart failure. And I'm going to throw another one in there. You should do a lactate in someone who comes in with acute decompensated heart failure, because it's a good indicator of end organ ischemia. Okay, mm, good. So your baby, Rahul. Ah, the BNP. Okay, so the BNP is an investigation. What does it stand for? A B-type natriuretic peptide, or oh. brain natriuretic mm. peptide. That's the old name. Now, it's a peptide that's released from the ventricular wall in response to increased wall tension, so when there's more fluid in there, stretching it out. Uh, and the Breathing Not Properly study showed that it's a very good indicator. If you use levels of about 100 um, as your cutoff, so if it's elevated, it's a really good indicator of someone in heart failure. Now, you can all, there's a whole bunch of new studies coming out about using it in terms of tre- for treatment. Um, so you actually tailor your therapy to BNP. Um, there's studies, heaps of good evidence saying that um, your BNP is a good indicator of prognosis in chronic heart failure patients. So the higher it is at baseline, the worse your outcome you have. Um, and also, interestingly, you'll get a lot of people saying we don't order a BNP because it's too expensive and my, I'm such a good clinician that I don't need it. But there was a study in the New England Journal of Medicine, and I encourage you to fire back to all your consultants with this. <laughs> Just don't say I told you to say this. Uh, New England Journal of Medicine study that showed that each hospital admission was $2,000 cheaper. There was a lower co- all-cause mortality and lower ICU and hospital admission. So, I mean, it's, it's really a must-order for heart failure patients. Um, and 
some people might be thinking based on the way I described it, hey, you know, you said it's from stretching the ventricle, but what about in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction where you don't stretch your ventricle? Rahul. That's what I would say. That is your real name, yeah. That's exactly <laughs> how you'd say it, I can imagine. Um, so there's a study that shows that whilst it is lower in people with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, so people who just have a big ventricle that's, you know, not so big that it can't pump properly, but it is getting rid of all the blood in there. Uh, in those people, it's still a good diagnostic tool. It's still a good prognostic tool. The cutoff values are just a, bit, a little bit lower. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to be the devil's advocate. There are some limitations. It's not the be-all, end-all. Um, so patients can have multiple causes of dyspnea, nothing to stop them from having pneumonia and heart failure. In it's fact, a, it's a good point. you're more likely to have both of those things together. They beget each other. Mm. And also there's other causes. So renal failure, you can have increased BNP, sepsis, AF, and it's low in obese patients, which obviously have a higher predisposition to heart failure. But is a very good test, though. So moving on to the chest X-ray, so the, your basic imaging. So very good at differentiating heart failure from primary pulmonary disease. That's what it's used for. So important findings to look out for, cardiomegaly. So that's where the cardiothoracic ratio is greater than 50%. And then pulmonary edema. So there's three grades, uh, or four if you include grade zero where there's nothing, that's normal. Then there's grade one where there's evidence of upper lobe diversion or cephalization. Grade 2, which is interstitial edema, where the fluid hasn't quite got to the alveoli. It's getting there, though. But interstitial edema, you'll see curly B lines, which are short parallel lines at the periphery of the lung, less than one centimetre in length, and they present fluid in the interlobular septa. Mm. Peribronchial cuffing, where the around the bronchus is swollen with fluid. Again, just looks like white lines around the earlier parts, the more, the more medial parts of the film. Um, hazy contour of vessels as well. You can't see the vessels as clearly as you'd like to. And fluid in the horizontal fissure is a particular favourite of my consultant. He always looks for that. So that's grade two. Mm. Then grade three, so the fluid has got to the alveolar now. The big kahuna. <laughs> alveolar edema is what it's called. So you'll see consolidation. You'll see air bronchograms because there's so much fluid everywhere else in the lung that there's these black um, lines which represent air in the broncho- bronchi. There's this cotton wool appearance, and um, often you'll see pleural effusions in these patients as well. So if you've got left heart failure um, and you've got alveolar edema, that can then progress to pleural effusions, but with right heart failure, you can have pleural effusions without alveolar edema. Mm. So how good is the chest X-ray? There's a study of... How good is the chest X-ray? <laughs> pretty good. Yeah. It's uh, specific, uh, but not sensitive is, is the basic rule of thumb. So alveolar edema, interstitial edema, cephalization were found to have a specificity of greater than 90%. Just to clarify, cephalization basically means that your vessels in the top of your lung look bigger than the vessels in your bottom of the lung. Same as upper lobe diversion. Yeah. Um, Cardiomegaly was the most sensitive sign. So you're probably sitting here frustrated saying, why am I learning about chest x-rays from an audio educational format? Yeah, go look at some. (laughs) There will be, I'll put um, a very good site in the link dump that will give you a visual basis for all of this as well. So the once you've done all of this, this is kind of leads you to the path of the, the holy echocardiogram, which is impossible to get at my hospital, but very important. Very impossible, yeah. So it should be done in all patients with heart failure or suspected heart failure for multiple reasons. It can identify the cause um, and it can also identify how severe it is. And it's the only investigation that can very well distinguish between systolic and diastolic heart failure. So the other thing the echo is good at is estimating pulmonary artery systolic pressures, um, which it does by looking at the right ventricular systolic pressure. 
which is obviously estimates pulmonary hypertension, which can be a result of left heart failure or a cause of right heart failure. The way it does that, it looks at um, trivial tricuspid regurgitation that almost everyone has and will uh, measure the velocity of that blood to give you an estimate of the right ventricular systolic pressure. And then if you see a really high RVSP, you might make the diagnosis of um, pulmonary hypertension signature to left heart failure, or if there is no left heart failure, you will have to do right heart catheterization. Mm. Subject for another podcast, though. Mm. So echocardiograms help us grade left ventricular function. So a, a normal... Um, left ventricular function is 50 to 70%. Greater than that is hyperdynamic. And then you've got mild, so grade 1 LV is 40 to 49%. Moderate is 30 to 39%. That's grade 2 LV. And severe, uh, less than 30% is grade 3. But for medical students out there, just remember, less than 40 is when you start saying this person has heart failure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, it's important to remember as well that these don't actually correlate as well with prognosis as the previously mentioned New York Heart Association criteria. Mm. So that's cool. History trumps. Mm. All right. Um, other tests, we'll go through this quickly because this is beyond the junior doctor level. You can do an ultrasound of vena cava. Can't wait until this becomes standard practice or you don't have to look at JVPs anymore. Um, so when your volume status is unclear on physical examination cardiopulmonary exercise testing. So that gives a really comprehensive picture of exercise tolerance. This is your VO2, which is also done in some athletes. Basically about how much uh, oxygen in your body can chomp up. Mm -hmm. okay. Cardiac biopsy. Do that in pretty much all patients, I think. That's a joke. That, that was a joke. <laughs> Please don't biopsy the heart of patients. <laughs> it's very rarely done. Cardiac MRI is becoming fashionable these days. Mm -hmm. With good reason, there is some evidence behind it. Mm-hmm. And a radionuclide ventriculogram, which is an old-school investigation. Now echoes are used to measure, measure ejection fraction, but we still do it sometimes. Oncologists particularly like it because it gives them a very precise it's measure accurate. and they can tell whether all their drugs are cardiotoxic. So that's it for this podcast. Thanks very much for coming along. So there'll be quite a bit in the link dump this week. There's a lot of resources, uh, papers, and uh, visual stuff that you should probably have a look at. There will also be a Quizlet up, which will run through mm -hmm. what we talked about. And, uh, yeah, look, it's a lot of stuff, but heart failure is important, and you'll never regret learning heart failure back to front, all right? I agree. And I am Rahul. <laughs> Bye.